Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another incredible Market Impact Insights episode. And today, we are going to really reinforce the philosophy of the podcast. Uh, For those of you that have listened, you know that it's all about making a positive impact every day in business. And we've talked to a wide range of business leaders uh, and really gained a lot of insights around that. And in times of great change, upheaval and uncertainty, which we are all living in right now, exceptional leadership is so critical in making that positive impact happen. And nowhere is that more true than in sales, which is really the lifeblood. And in partnership with marketing, you think about acquisition, retention of customers, sales is in such a critical position in organizations. And in times of change, it really requires exceptional leadership. And I am so excited for the conversation today on sales leadership in times of change because my guest is the definition of exceptional leadership. Laura Blackmer is Senior Vice President, Dealer Sales for Konica Minolta Business Solutions USA, a $2 billion business unit of Konica Minolta, a multinational technology company that's focused on business and industrial imaging products. In her 35-year career, Laura has held senior sales and executive roles at leading companies, including Hewlett-Packard, Intermec Honeywell, and Sharp. She is a three-time honoree of the CRN Women of the Channel and was named a 2020 CRN Channel Chief. I've had the privilege of working alongside Laura, and I can tell you that her acumen for channel strategy team motivation, and ability to drive results is truly second to none. So all the way from the Garden State of New Jersey, Laura, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Wow. Thank you, Dan. Well, thank goodness this isn't a video because I'm so blushing. Um, but thank you. That was a great intro. And I'm really excited to be here. And I actually, I'm looking forward to hearing some of your other podcasts because I think you're, you're really hitting the mark at this point in time with uh, what people really need to hear. So. Kudos to you. Right. And you've had this amazing career in sales. I just gave the the tip of the iceberg in terms of the highlights, but I'd like to go back to the beginning because I, I know that there's a very interesting story here in terms of the inspiration for you to ultimately take that career path in sales. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Actually, some people might call it just a pure accident um, versus inspiration, but either way, it worked. Uh, so it's kind of a funny story. I was going to be a veterinarian. I was one of those kids from the time I was four or five years old. If you asked me, what was I going to do? I was going to fix puppies and be a veterinarian. So I went on to uh, apply for and got accepted to Colorado State University, which has a great vet program. And I was about halfway through my second year when um, it turned out I didn't have enough money to finish. So I had to take uh, time off and get a full-time job and, and really sock away some money. And the job I found was really funny. It was just, you know, back in the day of circling classified ads, it was a startup in, in downtown Boston that had developed um, a product for the telephone industry. So pretty, pretty, you know, 
basic stuff. And, but it was the first time I'd ever had any experience in business. My family was not from a business background. So this was really new to me. And, and I found myself over the course of a few weeks, I was managing, and I'm putting that into quotes, um, their manufacturer representative team. Now, those of you that can think back, this was a pretty common way to sell products, especially if you were a small business. But these were pretty grizzled uh, industry veterans who ran these small manufacturer rep companies and would rep your products to local local companies, either whether they were technology companies or distributors. So it was really, really interesting to get to know these folks and and understand what made them tick. And I discovered, you know, lo and behold, that I actually really liked it. And I and I got I got up every day pretty energized to work with them. And here I was, you know, 19 years old, and they were most of them were in their 40s and 50s. And we just found this connection that really worked. And, you know, I I as soon as I had enough money, I actually went back to Colorado State. I, I got myself into their college of business, which is a great college of business, and you know, proceeded to graduate with a business degree. So I went kind of, you know, a full 180, um, found myself very lucky to get into Hewlett Packard, which I think, you know, I always tell people I was really lucky to be there when they were a fantastic company and were investing so heavily in their people for growth and particularly women. They were one of the first pioneers to really acknowledge that getting women into management was good for business. So I, I really, you know, I found myself talk about right place, right time. And, you know, the rest is they kind of say is history, but it is a funny start. It was a complete accidental start, but boy, oh boy, am I glad it worked out the way it did. You know, and just listening to you tell that story, I'm thinking of here you are, you're you're not even 20 years old, you're taking a sabbatical from vet school. And that is the ultimate trial by fire, you're jumping in and you're having to really influence, uh, you know, experienced people in that space, you know, sometimes twice your age, you know, maybe three times your age. And so just it's amazing how you were able to do that. And then the confidence builder that must have been. Oh, it was huge. And it was so what I what surprised me, I think more than anything, Dan was, it was really fun. I was really jazzed by, you know, as these guys were working deals and they'd call me and they'd say, we need to get a great price for this opportunity. And I was like, great, let's go win it. And I, I surprised myself. I had no idea that I had this affinity and this passion for, for you know, engaging with these kind of companies. So it, it was really fun. And I don't know how if they ever knew how old I was. I'm sure they would have had a different opinion. But uh, most of what <laughs> I did was done on the phone. And so, you know, they just knew that I was somebody that would help them win deals. And it was really, I really, really enjoyed it. And, and uh, yeah, it was just that I just happened to get that circle at the right place on the classified ad and get that job. It's scary how small a decision can have such a large impact, you know, on your life, right? I mean, it's pretty, pretty crazy. It, it is. And it certainly sounds like it stirred up your competitive spirit uh, over time as well. And 100%. yeah, yeah. And so uh, in looking at, at your career, Technology has been a constant theme, but you've actually worked in a wide range of industries that serve very different, unique markets. And I'm curious how that diversity of experience has really honed and and sharpened your leadership skills. And are are there some key takeaways that you've been able to benefit from just by the diversity, the range of your experience? So it's it's interesting because the reality is I am I'm not a product person I, I'm not a technologist I would never add that to my list of things I call myself but I do try to know and understand the products right so I w- I want to understand them but I'm not someone who finds passion in the products I find passion 
in, in building the sales chain, whether it's, you know, through distribution, through resellers, through dealers, um, you know, and then ultimately to the end customer. So what I found is I could take a lot of the skills and learning that I had and apply it to almost any situation. And, you know, so there was a lot of parallels in these technology industries. Most of them worked through some third party to get their products to market to customers. So whether that was, you know, a two-tiered distribution model or a single-tier model or a dealer model, there was definite similarities. And and what was kind of cool was I could take, you know, sort of some of my best learnings or best practices from one industry to the other. And it helped me bypass, you know, it's a very common, right? You hear a lot of, well, we do it this way, right? I'm actually using the positive form of that, but we do it this way. Well, okay, we do it this way, but what if we could do it that way because I saw success that way. So I was able to kind of take some of those learnings, take some of those best practices and apply them basically across almost every company I've worked for. And and at the end of the day, the, the thing that became the least important was the product. What became important was relationships, programs, understanding, you know, the needs of the whole chain, right? Depending on how many steps you had in it and then applying all the pieces in in a way that made sense, was easy to understand, easy to do business with. So I think it really mattered a whole lot less about the product or technology and a whole lot more about the chain and the the techniques that we used to really help all pieces of that chain be successful. Yeah, you're you're really onto something there, Laura, because even through my own experience, and like you, I've from a marketing perspective, I've worked in a really wide range of different spaces, some uh, Mm -hmm. business to business spaces. I've done B2C. I've been, you know, in the fitness space. And what I found is that transferability, uh, that adaptability, if you're, if you're bringing in strong foundational leadership skills, it's much less about the product specific knowledge, because that's something that's learnable. There's, there's a learning curve, but that, that can be, that can be tackled you know, as a leader to to move into a new space. But what can't necessarily be learned uh, is uh, or be replaced is just having that solid foundation of just strong strategic skills, leadership skills. So I, I'm, I'm right with you there in terms of uh, the, the transitional ability um, there to move across different industries. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my team will often tease me that it takes me at least a year to even know our product numbers. But I think what I've always valued is there's people in the organization that know these products and can um, be real valuable to our customers because of that knowledge. That's not my, that's not the value that I'm bringing to the table. So I sort of, I'm, I'm kind of hanging on that for, for now. And maybe someday I'll have to learn it really well, but for now there's really smart people that know these products a lot better than I'll ever know them. Well, I know one of the things that you do that's really important to you is getting out, really being a visible influencer and, and sharing your perspectives. And I've checked out some of your uh, presentations with business leaders. And something that really struck a chord with me was when you were talking about the importance of empathetic listening. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's funny, that's kind of an old term these days. I think it's moved on. Um, I have kind of morphed that term even for myself into more of a term about being present in whatever that engagement is, right? Whether it's a, a, a presentation in front of a thousand people or a one-on-one conversation with a dealer 
on Zoom, right? And we have kind of gone that full that full gamut at this point. Um, but for me, it's it's not something that it can be taught. I have seen it taught, but there still has to be a piece of the person who finds that to be a natural ability because you can't fake it. You can't pretend to be listening. You know, they used to tell you, you know, acknowledge what the other person is saying or nod your head or, um, you know, make eye contact. All of those are great things to do, but they're not a replacement for really hearing what's happening in the environment immediately in front of you. And again, and I think it's been an interesting process to watch us have to do this when we're sitting on technology, right? We're sitting here doing Zoom meetings or Google Meet meetings or whatever the technology is and having to recreate that sense of being engaged. And and a lot of times the, the physical cues don't work as well. So it really becomes how do you engage that that whether it's a customer, it's an employee, it's a peer, um, how do you engage that person in a way that shows that you are 100% present? Um, I don't know about you. I am a terrible multitasker. I, I used to believe I was actually a really good one until I realized that I wasn't. <laughs> There's really no other way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. um, you cannot listen and read email. It's physically impossible. Your brain can't do that. And I think I think that acknowledgement, although it's hard, it's sort of admitting something that most people don't want to admit, but that acknowledgement is so critical. And then the ability to say, I am going to do nothing at this moment except hear what you're saying, hear it. And, and, and hopefully if I do it right and I get it, then that information becomes information that's priceless to me. And I can take that information and do a million things with it that will add value. Cause the reality is whether you're listening or not in the moment, you know, most people may not be able to tell what they will tell is, did you actually do something meaningful with the information we just shared? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And to me that it, that's it. There's, you know, there's no other way to measure it. Um, it's not how many times I nod my head or I say, aha, uh-huh. it's how much I can take that information and make something that really does hit the mark. And um, I think customers know the difference. I think anybody knows the difference. Frankly, I know my kids do for sure. So they can absolutely tell when I am not listening. So I think it's, you know, whatever exercise we're doing, the ability to really hear it, really listen, put everything else aside is uh, it's a it sounds so simple. It's probably the hardest thing we do as as people, especially now with all the distractions in front of us. Yeah, that is so true. And Laura, you know, in, in the environment today where so much more of the group communication, one-to-one or small group, large group communication is happening through uh, through remote video, uh, Zoom, et cetera, WebEx, whatever that might be. It seems like the potential risk for drifting off into a place of multitasking just increases, right? When you're in that kind of remote environment. And uh, so, so how do we, I think the key is when you're not in an in-person situation where there might even be more like nonverbal uh, accountability, Q, uh, uh, you know, accountability in that interaction, you know, how do we stay focused on that moment through that video connection? It's harder. It's really hard. And, and the reality is the only person that can hold you accountable is yourself. And that's a big difference. You know, it used to be if you're in a meeting with six or seven people and you're looking at your phone, everybody in that meeting knows it. Today, yeah, you see people put it down below or maybe even take themselves off video. But who you owe that to is yourself, is to say, that's just not a practice I'm going to participate in. 
while I'm in this moment. I'm going to participate in the moment and be a part of it. And it's, you know, it's hard. Oh, goodness. It's probably one of the hardest things we do. Um, but it's so important because it makes a difference. It truly does. It's a personal choice and commitment. Absolutely. And I, I know something that is really important to you that you're really passionate about. It's about focusing on partners, on dealers, on customers, right? Very, very focused on that. And we hear all the time about the benefits of, quote, customer-focused organizations. I'm curious what your philosophy is around how this term voice of the customer, this philosophy, can positively shape a company's culture. That's a, it's a good question. And I think you know, being in, in, in you and I have both been in a lot of product focused companies, right? Not service companies, but product focused companies. And when you're in a product focused company, it's really hard to move that company from thinking about the product to thinking about the customer. It's just a natural process, right? Everything starts with the product. The reality is nothing should start with the product. Everything should start with the customer and then work backwards. And so it's always, you know, being on the sales side, it's sort of a constant message um, to make sure that everybody's thinking, okay, remember, remember, this is our, our customer. And so we have to make sure that whatever it is we're creating over here, whether it's in Japan or in the United States, can, can meet that customer's needs. So you have to know what they are, you have to build that, and you have to then deliver it in a way that works for them. So it's a hard, it's a hard transition for product-focused companies to make, but it's not impossible. And the way it's not impossible is by listening, right? That going back to what we just talked about and using that information that makes a difference in your, whether it's the people that you're, you're hiring, uh, the products that you're selling, the programs that you're using to help drive um, you know, engagement. I, I think part of it, you know, sometimes some of it's so simple. Some of it's just figuring out who is our customer. You know, and I can tell you that uh, early on in my days and channels, I spent a lot of time educating our company, my own company, that the customer wasn't just the person that ultimately plugged this product into their wall and started using it. The customer was everyone in that supply chain who was ultimately doing an action on our behalf. And that took a while. Um, you know, there was a lot of resistance to thinking of distributors or resellers or dealers as customers. We wanted to think of them as a, you know, a cog in the wheel, a step in the chain. And the reality is there's, there's a, a give and take at, at each level. So I think, first of all, it's identifying, okay, who truly are the customers. Um, it's also our own team right? They're my customers. I think servant leadership starts with that in mind at all times. And then it's figuring out at each point in the chain, what does that, what does that customer need? What does a dealer need that's different from a distributor that's different from an end customer? And, and then applying it. It's not always easy and we don't always get it 100% right, but we will never be faulted for not trying. <laughs> That's always been um, always been my mantra. I mean, you and I grew up under the you know high speed near perfect, right? And it's sort of yeah. the same way. And a new one I heard the other day, which I loved, was the fail fast, learn faster. Um, which is yeah, if you're gonna if if you've made a mistake, move on and but learn from it so that it doesn't happen again. So um, I think in, especially in today's environment where we're trying so many new things to try to figure out how we can meet the demands of all of our customers. Yeah. Fail fast, but learn faster. 
And uh, I'm all all about that. And I wouldn't say, you know, fail doesn't mean it's it's absolute catastrophic. It just means, oops, okay, that that didn't work. Let's pivot really quickly and try this one. Um, yeah, yeah, work. yeah. I really I really like that because you know I've been in organizations that have gone through periods of time where they uh, can be become very risk averse, right? And and the the focus is on doing really uh, in-depth data-driven decision-making analytics, but you can take that too, too far as well. And, and then you're not making any decision and you're not really trialing. You're not, and, and the fear of failure can actually be this huge uh, roadblock you know, to achieving breakthroughs. So it can, it's really a balance, right? You, you need to have the courage to be able to go out and move with the speed and a conviction around the trialing. And it's okay. You're not going to bat, uh, you know, uh, you know, a thousand percent, you're going to, you have some failures. The key is how quickly you can translate the learning from that, as you said, into uh, try it again and keep refining and keep moving forward. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, the, the current situation we're in has actually, to your point, actually stymied, I think a lot of innovation because people got really scared, right? And see when people are in fear, operating from a place of fear, it never really works. So it took some time to kind of, okay, wait a minute, we're going to make it through. And those of us that are willing to get a little more courageous, a little more bold, um, have a chance, right? Have a chance to sort of break out of it faster. And, and the other big thing that I thought about and put a lot of energy into was not allowing us to just get into a reactive mode where we're just constantly reacting to this, you know, the situations as they changed. But what could we do proactively to get ahead of it a little bit. I'm not saying it always worked, right? Again, that sort of fail fast. But I I at least felt that we were we were behaving in a way that was more true to our core rather than just sort of, you know, whacking the moles, right? We were actually going out and saying, no, no, let's dig a new hole. <laughs> let's try <laughs> this one first and see if um, you know, if we can tackle a problem. And and again, didn't wasn't a hundred percent, but it was a better way to operate. I can tell you that. I think it changed the whole mindset of our team was to get a lot more, okay, let's go after this. Let's not just sit back and wait for it to happen to us. Well, this last year, Laura, has certainly been unprecedented. We've faced just unknown challenges we've never seen before. And many companies are, you mentioned pivoting earlier. I mean, we're in massive pivot mode, especially when you think about uh, sales leaders and how they keep their teams motivated through this pandemic. Uh, can you share a little bit on your approach of keeping your large virtual teams really engaged throughout this? That's a great question. And, um, you know, it's funny. I don't think it's something that you could have just started the day the shutdown happened and said, okay, I'm going to start engaging my team. I think it had to be a practice that was already in place, right? And and so what I found was we didn't have any, okay, here are the three things I'm going to do to be engaging the team. What we did was keep doing what we were doing. The first thing we did was just check in. Uh, we just started checking in with people as a leadership team and saying, okay, you're home now. What do you need? Some people needed technology. Some people needed printers. Um, some people needed better Wi-Fi to be able to support what we knew was going to be you know, a much more virtual motion. So uh, we spent a lot of time just checking in. And then I think the other one, which surprised me, and again, it wasn't like I planned it, but I knew that um, obviously the team, as 
former road warriors, they were on the road all the time, they were meeting with people all the time, were feeling really kind of alone and isolated working from home. So we started doing uh, my famous all hands calls, which are usually a quarterly event, started doing them every other Friday, Friday afternoon. And, and I tried to find ways to make them a little more fun and entertaining, because frankly, I was feeling that um, isolation and that uh, boredom a little bit myself. So we tried to make them fun. We had spirit week, right? Where everybody wore their college sweatshirt or uh, I even made my poor daughters um, show theirs off. And, and I think it had this benefit, first of all, of creating a little bit more esprit de corps, but even more importantly is showing vulnerability, showing that I was feeling and the leadership team were feeling very much the way they were feeling, which was a little bit scared, right? What was going to happen to the business? What was going to happen to their customers? Um, a little bit isolated um, and trying to figure out how to do this. So we, we did a lot of those kind of fun things. We had prom week, which was the day my, my poor daughter was supposed to have her junior prom. Um, so we did it in a fun way. But I think actually one of the most powerful days uh, or events that we did, and it wasn't, again, this wasn't planned, but um, it was about a week after the George Floyd event. Mm -hmm. And all of us, um, and I'm sure this happened across uh, companies, all of us in leadership were really struggling with how to address this very, very momentous and pivotal, pivotal situation that happened in the country. And um, to not do so, I think would have been uh, very much a mistake because it would have ignored something that was, you know, really impacting people. And so I decided to address it, but from a very personal standpoint. And I, I even fronted my conversation by saying, this is, this does not reflect the views of the company. This is truly my view. And it was a very personal, very um, emotional statement. And I, I was worried a little bit of, of how people would react. Um, but the, as as always happens in these situations, the reactions were amazing. People sent me notes. People called me. Uh, people told me that I had basically captured exactly how they were feeling. Um, and I think what it did is show a vulnerability that maybe they didn't expect. And if you if you know servant leadership or you read about it, that that's a big part of true servant leadership, which which is to be vulnerable. Vulnerability builds trust. And what we needed this organization to have was a trust in each other and a trust in us um, and our ability to navigate what we were faced with. And so uh, that had a big effect. So it wasn't like, okay, you know, we had all these plans on how we were going to engage the team. It was a bit ad hoc, but the impact really had, um, it, it caught me by surprise. I think it caught themselves by surprise. I actually uh, suggested in the summer that we move to a, uh, go back to the one, one a quarter all hands calls just because they're a lot of work. And the reaction was like immediate. No, absolutely not. I, I look forward to these. These are important to me. And so we do them about once a month now. We still move them around. We still have um, like the next one is going to be Mardi Gras, which should be pretty funny. So, you know, we're trying to keep them fun to try to engage people at a time when they're feeling like if I have to stare at these four walls for another week, you know, <laughs> somebody's going to get hurt. So we're really um, excited that the team has reacted the way they reacted. And it's allowed us, again, going back to what we talked about before, it's allowed us to be more proactive rather than reactive. The team is looking for ideas. They um, have come up with some amazing ways to engage their dealers based on what we've done. So um, I think, you know, I wish I could say I had planned it exactly, but I don't think anybody planned 
how they were going to react to this. But so far, it, it's actually worked out really well. And the team has been has really been responding and has been so just energized and hasn't missed a step, frankly, in, in 10 months, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, what a great example. The other word that comes to mind just listening to you talk about that uh, journey is authenticity, right? There's there's no replacement for just being authentic. It's vulnerability. It's authentic as a leader. It's amazing what that can do. Yeah, it is. And I, I you know, sometimes it's it's sad how rare it can be. You know, I think there there's sometimes people get this impression, well, now that I'm a manager, I've got to behave differently than I did when I was a sales rep or or now that I'm a director, I have to behave differently than I did as a manager. And nothing could be further from the truth. The more authentic you are to who you are, people see through it. I mean, there's, I know, you, I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it. We know when someone's not being true to themselves. So I agree. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. And we've been talking a lot about your internal focus and and as you were working with your teams inside the company, but what about your your customers and your dealers? I mean, obviously they're also grappling with all the uncertainties and this huge change environment. Have you seen though the fact that we're in this unprecedented time actually be a forcing function for some positive innovation when you think about your customers and your and your dealers? Absolutely. Um, you know, to give you a little bit of history, we have we as an organization um, started to diversify the business. I want to say ten years ago. Really, uh, we bought a, an IT services company that's now grown into a basically a worldwide IT services company, and we've always been talking to our dealers about the need to diversify their business that in fact, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that people are printing less and using less paper and um, that this industry is not a growth industry per se, if you just look at the copier business. So it was really important that we as a company build out models that would allow our dealers to diversify their business. That being said, you know, the business was still a very strong business. The copier business is a very uh, cash rich, margin rich business. So there wasn't a lot of energy around change, as you would expect. Um, this event, I don't know what else to call it, but this event that hit us all last March um, absolutely forced it. And, and in fact, someone used a term recently that I really like, which is it moved our industry five years ahead. And I like that because it's a positive way to look at it, which is basically we just fast forwarded. And I like to tell my dealers, we just fast forwarded through all the pain and agony and we're, let's just move on. Um, and really what it's caused is we've had more conversations with more dealers about diversification, about bringing new products to sell to their customers that are in high demand right now. Things like unified communication platforms because their employees are all working from home. Things like workforce solutions and home security-based solutions because especially for companies managing sensitive information insurance hospitals. The ability to protect that information is huge. And so um, it's allowed us to have an audience that is very eager to hear what, what we're suggesting versus before they were like, yeah, 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 we know we got to change. I'll get to it right after, you know, I do X. Now they're like, what, when you said that before, can we get working on that right away? So it has had that kind of a positive effect. Um, and I think that ability to say we've just fast forwarded five years and now we're moving from here 
uh, I think is a really positive way to look at what was not necessarily a positive situation for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, there's there's reason for optimism. And of course, if we look at human history, we know that some of the greatest innovations over history have come during the most disruptive times. So, you know, it's history repeating itself again. And, and it's great to see uh, that you're already seeing the signs of uh, new thinking, new ideas and adaptability. So, Laura, thinking about the future, looking ahead and in thinking about professional selling, the development of meaningful customer relationships, what makes you optimistic about where that's heading? Oh, boy, a lot of things. But I think one of the things that makes me really optimistic is how quickly the sales process adapted to this. And I, I believe that, again, I think it was moving in this direction as the new buyers were coming into play. New buyers are different than old buyers. New buyers go on the internet and do research. New buyers like to communicate via technology versus, you know, sitting in front of their desk, commenting on their kids' pictures. So that was harder for people to adapt to from a sales perspective versus the fact that it was already happening at the customer level. Now that's the only way a lot of these people can sell is virtually and using tools and communicating with their customers in a way their customers have been wanting to communicate. So my optimistic outlook is that we're making that transition much faster than I would have ever guessed. So that has really given me a lot of um, optimism about, okay, we're going to be able to just keep going even when, right, when in, uh, is absolutely the right term, this clears and we are back to some normal, right? And I don't think it'll be exactly what it was a year ago, but I still think that these tools that we've developed, these these um, attributes of communicating with customers the way they've been asking aren't going to change. And we'll be able to be even more productive in that and really drive a different level of engagement with the customers. So very optimistic about that. Very optimistic about the fact that, you know, the reality is being adaptive um, still continues to be the, the number one um, decision that leads to success, right? Your ability to adapt. And so, you know, we saw growth in areas I would never have expected to see growth um, in a time when everything was contracting. So a lot of that was because of not just our you know, ability to adapt, but also our customers, our dealers. And so I'm, I'm so excited to see us take that as the economy does start to rebound and really drive change. And I think, I think 2021 is going to be, you know, an exceptional year for a lot of reasons. So yeah, I guess, um, and I try not to be Pollyanna about it. I try to be realistic, but I, I have a lot of good feelings about all the things we've learned and the ways we've adapted technology and how they're going to help us even as uh, the situation, you know, changes and, and starts to rebound. Well, it sounds like it truly is the new sales normal. And that that is a positive thing, right, in terms of uh, the path forward. So as we wind up our conversation, Laura, do you have any final advice for sales leaders that are looking to deliver consistent, sustainable growth? So I, I would say, you know, it kind of goes back to what we just said, which is, you know, be adaptive. Um, and this idea of fail fast, learn faster. That's another way to be, you know, able to adapt quickly. Um, 
I am a big believer in this concept of, you know, servant leadership, which we've talked about a couple of times today. And I do think that for some people, it might be such, um, such a contrast to a, how they were managed and led and how they do it today. But I really believe that the people we're, we're leading are looking for this. And so this ability to be vulnerable, this ability to be present uh, for the people that you're leading and, you know, truly take on a task of servant leadership will be a huge differentiator. It's amazing how people respond to that. And it's, uh, to use a word you used earlier, it's it's such an authentic way of building relationships um, that I, I think that there will be profound change in an organization if in fact the leaders take on that that task and i actually have my my whole management team uh we decided 2021 was the year of the book club which i i won't i won't say they all signed on but um, <laughs> they know that this is important to me but our first book is a, a great book by simon sinek called leaders eat last mm-hmm. and it's this whole idea of it's not about what's working for me it's about what's working for the people we're leading. And and I think this translates not just to the people that, that work in our organization, but actually to even all of the parties that we deal with outside of our organization, like dealers, like distributors, they want to see this kind of um, approach from the people they're partnering with. So I'm excited. I'm excited to bring some more learning and, and get our team jazzed up again. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's a big part of why we'll differentiate ourselves. Yeah, well, I know I've had several conversations with people throughout this uh, pandemic and uh, people that kind of reached the limit and say, what am I going to do? I have this downtime. I'm not traveling. And I say, you know, learn, make yourself better. And you're, you're exactly onto that with your team. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. And Laura, really appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience, uh, your career path, your learning, and uh, specifically the exceptional leadership you're bringing every day. Uh, during our challenging times. Thank you again. Thank you, Dan. And a reminder to our listeners, please make sure to go out. If you like this podcast, give us the gift of feedback, go out, uh, rate and review. You can do that easily through Apple Podcasts. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.